This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. It's the Media Buzz Meter with Howard Kurtz. Well, this was inevitable. Tim Scott dropping out of the presidential race. The reason... He was going nowhere. Now, look, the senator from South Carolina, he's an admirable guy, great life story, up from poverty. Uh, at the three debates, he made very little impression. Uh, he just doesn't sort of seem to take it to other people. And he was having trouble raising money. And he probably wasn't going to qualify for the next debate. The way in which he withdrew is interesting. It happened last night during an interview on Fox with Trey Gowdy, the former Republican congressman. Scott's saying, I think the voters, who are the most remarkable people on the planet, have really been clear that they're telling me, not now, Tim. So he's decided this is not his time. Look, I mean, the guy was mired at 1% or 2% in the polls and just wasn't getting any traction. Uh, that's been clear for many weeks now, even as he soldiered on with his campaign. The fact is, his dropping out has almost no impact on the race because he doesn't have a whole lot of voters um, to be picked up by any of the other candidates. That means that at the next debate, which is in a few weeks, there'll be four candidates on the stage. So this winnowing process, and I'm sure he was under some pressure. A lot of people would like to just see Ron DeSantis and Nikki Haley. I'm sure he was under some pressure to get out. But this winnowing process is really kind of accelerated because we're still a couple months away from the Iowa caucuses. Meanwhile, oh, by the way, I hope you had a good weekend. If you didn't see Media Buzz, which would be very disappointing to me personally, uh, among other segments, Brian Kilmeade and Leslie Marshall really went at it over the question of whether or not Donald Trump is having a series of mental lapses at age 77, clearly this line of argument to counter what's going on uh, with Joe Biden. And it had to do with why Trump repeatedly says Obama when you think he would say Biden. And Kilmeade counters with this. I interviewed Trump on the radio, and he said that Obama is pulling the strings from behind the scenes, that he's really running the Biden presidency. Because he said it, a lot of people, Republicans, believe it. I've gotten a lot of Twitter postings on that. So Kilmeade is saying this is deliberate, and Leslie Marshall says, come on, that's just spin. And they kind of went out. It's an interesting segment, among others. Um, we're all worried about the prospect of a wider war in the Middle East. And I'm a little bit more worried today. Uh, Pentagon announcing a new round of airstrikes against Iranian facilities in Syria that uh, the U.S. says was linked to dozens of recent attacks targeting U.S. troops. Fortunately, there haven't been any fatalities on the U.S. side, only minor injuries. But this is the third round of U.S. military counterattacks 
And we really have no choice. I mean, our people come under fire. President Biden says he's going to do something about it. And now for the third time, we have done something about it. Um, In a statement, Pentagon Chief Lloyd Austin saying these strikes were carried out in Syria on facilities used by the Iranian Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps and affiliated groups. They had a training facility and a safe house. Uh, Lloyd Austin saying that Biden directed the operation to make clear the United States will defend itself, its personnel, and its interests. Several people are believed to have been killed, according to the Pentagon. Uh, This was first reported by Fox News. And here comes the unnamed uh, official, senior U.S. defense official, telling the Washington Post, we continue to message to Iran that we hold them accountable for these and that their leaders must take action to constrain the activities of the groups Iran directs, trains, and equips. Now, again, what were the Iranians expecting But you can sort of see how if these attacks on both sides continue and if Hezbollah in Lebanon continues its attacks on Israel, we could slide into a wider Mideast war, which would be bad news for the world. Okay, story number one. I mentioned on the show yesterday that the New York Times and Washington Post were suddenly running these pieces warning of the dangers of a second Trump term. Now, that reflected two things in my view. One is uh, a clash with reality, a wake-up call, you name it, over the fact that Donald Trump could actually win the presidency a year from now. The, the idea of which the media in general have been in denial about. The second part has to do with President Biden's abysmal polling numbers, 39% approval in the latest CNN poll. And when you get down into some of the details, you see Donald Trump winning 23% of the black vote and 46% of the Latino vote. So obviously there is something between anxiety, nervousness, and outright panic among Democrats and some in the media. So there have been these stories about Trump's going to hire all these loyal attorneys who are not going to stop him from doing what he wanted to do. And the former president himself, in an interview with Univision, just, you know, he doesn't hide it. He tells you what he's going to do. He said, because of the way in which he believes the Justice Department and the FBI have been weaponized against him. He says, if I were going to become president and the opposition candidate was um, way ahead, you know, I just have the Justice Department indict him. And he'd be out. He'd be out of the race, who just knock him out. Which is a remarkably candid thing 
for Donald Trump to say. Usually, you know, when there's a report that politician X is going to just do something that is considered inflammatory, outrageous, you know, the campaign tries to tamp it down. Well, this is a complete misinterpretation and of course we would never consider doing such a thing. Trump says, yeah, I'll do it. His, his, his supporters love that. But the story in the New York Times over the weekend about his planned crackdown on immigration is in a very different category in that, first of all, it's unbelievably detailed. And as you read more, and as you read the uh, second, the on-the-record quotes from Stephen Miller, who was a top Trump official in the first term, and often, you know, had a lot to say about immigration and um, policies at the border and so forth. There's very little question he's coming back in a second Trump term, if in fact there is one. And it's clear that the White House made Stephen Miller available and otherwise cooperated with this New York Times piece. So Donald Trump is planning an extreme expansion of his first-term crackdown on immigration if he returns to power, including preparing to round up undocumented people already in the United States on a vast scale and detain them in sprawling camps while they wait to be expelled. This would restrict uh, both legal and illegal immigration. Now, the Times, of course, is, is reporting this with a certain undercurrent of Remember, you know, when Donald Trump separated children from their illegal immigrant families? Well, the story doesn't say he's going to do that again, but it's sort of like, well, look what he's got planned for this time. He wants to revive his first-term border policies, including banning entry by people who are from certain Muslim-majority countries and reimposing that COVID-19-era policy of refusing asylum claims, not through covid but on the assertions that migrants carry other infectious diseases like tuberculosis. He plans to scour the country for unauthorized immigrants and deport people by the millions per year. Look, Barack Obama deported a lot of illegal immigrants as well, not necessarily millions, and not necessarily those who were already been here for some time, but more those who had recently arrived, and he took a lot of heat from the left for that. But think about what that would mean. Scouring the country for millions of immigrants who have already been living here, but they're unauthorized. They didn't come in legally. To help speed up the mass deportations, Trump preparing an enormous expansion of um, a kind of a removal that doesn't require all these hearings. Uh, he would reassign other federal agents deputized local police officers and National Guard soldiers voluntarily contributed by Republican-run states. And there's a lot more. Building the huge camps, which Stephen Miller said would probably be built in Texas. I mean, that's how much they're thinking about this. Uh, The constellation of Trump's plans amounts to an assault, says the Times, on immigration on a scale unseen in modern American history. Millions of undocumented immigrants will be barred from the country or uprooted from it years or even decades after settling here. 
And the Times rightly points out such a scale of plan removals would raise logistical, financial, and diplomatic challenges and would be vigorously challenged in court, no doubt about that. No mistaking the breadth and ambition of what Trump is contemplating. The visas, I think he's talked about this publicly, of foreign students who participated in anti-Israel or pro-Palestinian protests would just be canceled. U.S. consular officials would, uh, abroad, that is, would be directed to expand ideological screening of visa applicants to block those who the administration considers to have undesirable attitudes. People who are granted temporary protected status because they're from certain countries, well, that status will be revoked. Numerous people who've been allowed to live in the country for humanitarian reasons would lose that status, including Afghans who were holding special visas granted to people who helped our American forces. They would be vetted again to see if they really did. I mean, come on. Uh, You know, we owe a great debt of gratitude to the Afghans who risked their lives to help Americans uh, during the war on terror. And then, of course, when the Taliban again took over, um, many of them were left behind. Trump will unleash, oh, this is Stephen Miller quoted on the record. Trump will unleash the vast arsenal of federal powers to implement the most spectacular migration crackdown. The immigration legal activists won't know what's happening. Well, not until now, anyway. Uh, Also, there's a quote from president of FWD.us, an immigration advocacy group that fought the Trump administration saying the Trump team's plans relied on xenophobic demagoguery that appeals to his hardcore political base. So I just don't know, even if you think it's a great idea. And look, I got to acknowledge that the Biden administration has so badly botched the border. Various things that he has tried have not worked. That... It's not only a very salient issue for Republicans, but memory Democrats are getting fed up with the situation, particularly once some of these illegal migrants started getting bussed to places like New York and Philadelphia and San Francisco, places that in law or in practice, deem themselves to be sanctuary cities. Well, suddenly the Democratic mayors of those cities not so thrilled about this when they have to bear part of the burden and it's not just the border states. So a lot packed into this piece and clearly, although you can imagine the Times kind of recoiling at this, clearly the Trump campaign, Stephen Miller, former president himself, wanted this out. This is not a coincidence. And it came out just before the former president of the weekend, speaking at a rally, said a few of these things, but not all of them. So this, of course, is going to force a lot of hand-wringing among Democrats. The Biden campaign will undoubtedly try to use it 
to their advantage. But again, as I say, this is not only a conservative issue anymore. No question about it. Hey, let's pause right there. The buzz meter continues right after this. Shipping can make or break a sale. So optimize how you ship your orders with ShipStation. They make it easy to automate and manage orders no matter how big your business grows. And they might even be able to help reduce shipping and warehouse costs. So optimize and keep up your momentum for growth with ShipStation. Sign up for your free 60-day trial now at ShipStation.com and use the code P-O-D. That's ShipStation.com with the code P-O-D. Number two, I want to spend some more time talking about Joe Manchin, who, as you know, announced that he's not going to seek re-election from West Virginia. Could cost the Democrats the Senate, although he might have easily lost anyway in that conservative state. And, you know, the fact that Joe Manchin isn't ruling out, you know how politicians play the wink-wink game, oh, I can't, I'm not ruling that out, I'm not ruling anything in or out, uh, about considering a third-party run for president, which, if he did it, and especially if he got on most ballots, which he could do by aligning with the no-labels outfit, would absolutely draw considerable support from Joe Biden. Manchin may be many things. He's a fierce protector of fossil fuels because West Virginia is a coal state. He does like attention. He did battle the Biden administration on many things, including climate change. And What's striking to me is in such a blink of an eye with Manchin certainly potentially throwing himself into the race, which could well hand the election to Donald Trump, and Manchin knows that. He's a smart guy. He gets politics. But it's how quickly some big-name pundits hopped on the Manchin bandwagon. Ben Dominich, my colleague, Uh, who works for The Spectator, writing in that magazine. What is surprising is how immediately and explicitly he made clear that he's entertaining the possibility of entering the 2024 presidential contest. This could prove monumentally important. Unlike most third-party candidates, Manchin has a real shot at being more than a protest vote. For the last true independent moderate independent-minded moderate, stumbled over that one, in the Democratic Party, it should be an easy choice. He has every reason to run. Republicans, Democrats, both headed toward nominating two of the most unpopular politicians in America. Donald Trump be running under a cloud of pending convictions that could render him toxic to independent voters. Joe Biden will be doddering through an election where it often seems he has no idea where he is at any given moment. Americans want someone else, even to the degree of entertaining the possibility of RFK Jr., who's never been elected to anything, just because he's a good podcast guest with different ideas. But Manchin has spent years proving, you know, in the Senate that he knows how to play the game. So there's a significant number of center-right donors who would back somebody like Joe Manchin, 
says Ben Dominich. And he doesn't have to worry about his political future since he's at the end of his political career. If he lo- career, if he loses, he'll just go and write the book he would have written anyway. While Manchin is far more level-headed and physically healthy than Biden or Trump, whoever he chooses to run with must be younger, media savvy, and appear culturally to his political right. There's these rumors going around that he would pick Mitt Romney as his running mate. Romney's already knocked this down, so you'd have a Democrat and Republican. There are a host of moderate politicians aligned with Manchin on fiscal matters who can serve to reassure Republican-leaning voters that they could, in good conscience, vote for a lifelong Democrat. Uh, Could have the greatest impact since Ross Perot in 1992. Well, my own personal prediction is that Joe Manchin will do a lot of television, increasingly flirt with the idea that he may run for president, and in the end, not do it. Because I don't think he wants to be responsible, even as a conservative Democrat, for electing Donald Trump. But you never know. Maybe he'll convince himself he has a shot. Ross Douthat in the New York Times. When elites pine for a third-party candidate, they usually imagine somebody like Michael Bloomberg, a fiscal conservative and social liberal. But the sweet spot has always been slightly left of center on economics and moderate to conservative on cultural issues, which certainly describes Manchin. Douthat says the West Virginian could run authentically as an unwoke supporter of universal health care fiscal restraint, and a middle ground on guns and abortion. That's a better basis for a run than Bloombergism or Kennedy's courtship of the fringes with a chance of claiming from votes from never-Trumpers and the center-left. And Politico says that Biden's top advisors privately tried to persuade Manchin to make another run for the Senate. Multiple West Wing aides, including senior counsel Steve Frischetti, and some outside Biden allies as well, talked to Senator Manchin, according to two White House officials and another who granted anonymity. Their pitch to Manson was that while a re-election bid in a deep red state would be difficult, he had a path to victory. Well, we won't find out now. Number three, it was really striking over the weekend when Tony Blinken said that, quote, far too many Palestinians have been killed in Gaza. So clearly the Biden administration growing very concerned about the rising death toll in the Gaza Strip. Much more needs to be done to protect civilians and make sure humanitarian assistance reaches them, said the Secretary of State. We want to do everything possible to prevent harm to them and to maximize the assistance that gets to them. Um, he also said the Biden administration, or he suggested, stepping up pressure, uh, pressure on Israel to do more to limit the harm to civilians. Well, first of all, Bibi Netanyahu seems determined to resist that pressure. Second of all, there is now a huge uproar And there were tens of thousands of people who marched in favor of the uh, Palestinians in London yesterday. The pictures are amazing. But essentially, there's now this, what has been declared 
by Hamas to be a war zone around Gaza's biggest hospital, where Hamas is accusing Israel of having, you know, dropped a whole bunch of bombs. Israel is denying that, but Israel says that in the, the basement of his hospital, as in other hospitals, says Israel, as in uh, some UN schools, says Israel, Hamas uses those areas to launch weapon attacks. They do it under the tunnels. And that therefore, they are the ones putting their own people in jeopardy. At the same time, Israel, Netanyahu has gone back and forth in several different TV interviews. First, he said that Israel would have to occupy Gaza after the war for an indefinite period of time. And that set off alarm bells around the world. Then in an interview with Brett Baer, he backtracked and said, well, it's not clear, or he just sort of backed off it. And then yesterday morning on Meet the Press, the prime minister said, uh, oh, we don't plan to occupy Gaza at all. But the Israeli ambassador saying on Fox News Sunday that while while sort of towing the company line on the hospital business, saying that Israel must maintain a security presence in Gaza, and I've never doubted that to be the case. So you have all these conflicting stories about just what's going to happen the day after the war, if, in fact, the Israelis and their military machine can topple Hamas. Now, here's a piece by Andrew Sullivan on his Substack sort of wrestling with all this. Supporters of Hamas and the Palestinians have seized the G word, that is genocide. And who can blame them? Um, There's a real charge in accusing the victims of the worst genocide in modern history, that is the Israelis, of being genocidal themselves. Israel, we charge you with genocide is a common chant in many of the pro-Palestinian protests. Genocide Joe has been trending on Twitter, although President Joe Biden uh, has increasingly been trying to rein BB in, and he's not having that much success. Uh, You know, four-hour windows in certain areas uh, to get humanitarian aid in and refugees out. 800 artists signed a letter calling the Israeli counterattack a genocide. So that goes on and on. Then he says, look, the the, the devastation in Gaza is horrifying to watch, worse than horrifying. Anyone who isn't deeply troubled by the mass death has lost humanity. But the uh, UN officials who are calling for ceasefire and all the others, they're full of it. The basic definition of genocide provided by the State Department is the deliberate killing of a large number of people from a particular nation or ethnic group with the aim of destroying that nation or group. And here's the thing. Horrifying massacres may or may not be genocidal, depending on the intention. The Hiroshima bomb, for example, was devastating, but was it, it was aimed at ending the World War II, not obliterating the Japanese people as a race. 
And if Israel was interested in the genocide of Palestinian Arabs, it has the means to accomplish it for a very long time. It has had the means. Yet for some reason, the Arab population of Israel and the occupied territories has exploded since 1948. And Arabs in Israel proper have voting rights and a presence in the Knesset, the legislature. This is not to exonerate Israel entirely. I've had strong words for the Netanyahu governments over the years, writes Sullivan. Israeli politicians on the far right have used foul rhetoric. Bibi even suspended a rogue minister for saying a nuke could be dropped on Gaza. There are anti-Arab maniacs among the West Bank settlers and in Bibi's cabinet, but a policy of Arab genocide? Please. The only people actively and proudly engaged in genocide are Hamas. It's right there in the Hamas founding charter. This is not just rhetoric. October 7th, we saw what genocide is in practice. Hamas didn't kill civilians as a tragic consequence of attacks on military targets. Its torture and murder of Jewish civilians was its core mission. They would kill every Jew they could. So that gives you a sense of um, how various people wrestle with this. Sullivan saying, I know this leaves me in another agonizing pretzel, defending Israel even in its deep moral failing. Hey, let's pause right there. The buzz meter continues right after this. Does Monday at the office feel like a storm? Not with Microsoft Copilot. That feeling when Copilot gets everyone up to speed instantly? It's sunny again. When Copilot simplifies complex data so your teams can act, that sun's shining on a beach. And when Copilot uncovers hidden insights, you're on that beach with your people and you find buried treasure. That's Microsoft Copilot. Learn more at Microsoft.com slash AI for all. All right, number four, FBI agents seizing New York Mayor Eric Adams' electronic devices. This happened the other day, and I thought, well, you know, it's kind of a local story. But if you think about it, FBI agents confronting the mayor of New York City, having him step into a car, and there they took his phone and whatever other devices he may have had. Because there's a corruption investigation, a federal corruption investigation, into whether his campaign conspired with the Turkish government and others to funnel money into its coffers. By the way, this is DOJ going after one of the most prominent Democrats in the country for those who say, oh, the Justice Department is just weaponized against Republicans. So they climbed into the, his SUV, took out a court-authorized warrant, took the devices, at least two cell phones and an iPad. They were given back to the mayor a few days later. Law enforcement investigators with a search warrant, of course, can make copies of what's on the devices. Now, a lawyer for Mayor Adams and his campaign said in a statement the mayor had immediately complied with the FBI's request and provided them with electronic devices. And uh, Adams has not been accused of wrongdoing and was cooperating with federal authorities. Now, yes, he's cooperating. I would just counter, like, what choice did he have? The FBI comes to you and says... We have a court warrant. Give us your devices. What's it going to do? Run away? Um, the statement did not identify the individual involved here, but we know who it is. I'll tell you in a second. 
Adam's own statement, as a former member of law enforcement, I expect all members of my staff to follow the law and fully cooperate with any sort of investigation. I will continue to do exactly that. Now, Adams himself is a retired police captain, so he knows how the law enforcement stuff works. And he said a couple days ago that he's so strident in urging his staff to follow the law that he can be annoying. He laughed off the idea that he might have any potential criminal exposure, but I don't think the Bureau's messing around here. Now, the fundraiser at the heart of this is a 25-year-old former intern, Brianna Suggs. They have not spoken since the raid. Adams was in here in Washington when this happened. He'd just gotten here to meet with White House and congressional officials about the migrant influx, which we were talking about earlier, which he says threatens to destroy New York City. But he, he canceled those meetings and went back to New York. He said he wanted to be there for his team and out of concern for Ms. Suggs, who he said had gone through a traumatic experience. Although I am mayor, I have not stopped being a man and a human. But he said he didn't talk to Suggs uh, that day to avoid the appearance of interfering in an ongoing investigation. Number five, I've been trying to get to this for a few days. Let's do a deep dive. This has to do with the sinking credibility of the media. Yes, I know, my favorite topic. And there's a piece in The Atlantic that I'll reference in a second. It's by Charlie Warzel, or it could be Warzel, I'm not sure. Sorry, Charlie. Um who makes the case, you know, there's been a lot about Silicon Valley abandoning the news business. And it's absolutely true. Uh, The new Facebook copycat of Twitter called Threads, the the guy who runs it just came out and said, you know, we don't don't really want to emphasize news. Elon Musk is de-emphasizing news by taking away the headlines that would prompt people to leave X and go to these other sites. Facebook changed its algorithm two, three years ago to de-emphasize news and emphasize friends and family stuff. So, you know, they just think it's too much trouble. It riles up too many people. It doesn't make for a good advertising environment, or so they say. So in this piece in The Atlantic, Charlie, I'll just call him Charlie, talks about Um, how all that is true and how traffic has nosedived, that is traffic that, you name it, the Washington Post, the Wall Street Journal, New York Times, CNN, Fox. I mean, I post all my stuff on all of these social media sites. How they became addicted to what I would call the sugar high of that increased traffic, which is now, as I say, taking a nosedive. And what he said was, it's not that Silicon Valley is just breaking up with the news business. Readers are breaking up with traditional news. And some of the people who used to go to these, you know, air quotes, legacy media sites 
are now going on TikTok or to YouTube influencers who are entertaining and steal some of their market share. They make it fun. Sometimes reading news sites is not so much fun. War, uh, congressional paralysis, border security, you name it. The song says breaking up is hard to do, but not so much for millions who are fed up with the press. So, quoting from the Atlantic piece, consuming news might have always, might have exacted an emotional toll, but by 2020, the experience of picking through the wreckage of social media to find out about the world was particularly awful. It's telling that during the darkest days of the coronavirus pandemic, the very act of reading news was rebranded as doom scrolling, and people have long called Twitter a hell site. It's no wonder then that people and platforms started opting out of news. The experience was miserable. And that's true, and it's especially true now in a time of brutal war and anti-Semitism. It's just been depressing. But I have a different analysis than Charlie. I think the factor, he does get to him in a different way, I think the key factor that he's missing is Donald Trump. So for one thing, the height of news engagement by people through social media or just directly with the big media organizations, it was the the middle of the Trump administration. Love Donald Trump, can't stand Donald Trump, doesn't matter. He had ordinary civilians. People would never talk to me about politics. You know, somebody, the dry cleaners or something, who wasn't especially political, talking about him all the time. He was into everything, not just the things he did um, in terms of running the country that were um, very controversial, to say the least. But, you know, he would comment on everything. He would comment on the Oscars. He would comment on Meryl Streep, who took a shot at him. He would comment on... um, Football players taking a knee. You name it, Donald Trump had something to say about it. And so, during that time, and Trump used to predict this, everybody's traffic, whether they were anti-Trump or pro-Trump, everybody's traffic was up. More clicks. More viewership. Higher ratings. Higher engagement. Higher circulation. And when Joe Biden, an extraordinarily low-key president, takes over, the numbers go down. He doesn't make as much, he doesn't, he rarely makes news, any news outside of politics and government. And even when he does that, he kind of pulls his punches most of the time. And then, you know, he doesn't give many interviews. He takes weekends off in Delaware. He's working, of course. So, When Charlie gets this, he says, Trump's every utterance conjured up the kind of divisive engagement perfectly tailored to trend across platforms. Okay, that's fair enough. But if you strip away social media, it's news companies themselves that enjoyed a boom during the Trump years. Didn't matter, as I said, whether they're playing to a pro-Trump audience or an anti-Trump audience. And here's the second point, but equally important. Republicans have long had less faith in the press than Democrats. 
And that exploded during the Trump presidency. But it really took off after January 6th, after Trump's insistence the election was rigged, after the indictments, and the blatant bias against Trump was overwhelming. Now look, Trump brought plenty of this on himself. Whatever your view of uh, the four criminal indictments and the civil case in New York, you know, Trump has used that almost as a part of his campaign. But those who believe Trump's narrative, that the deep state is against him, that it's all weaponized, that it's all Biden's fault, etc., they like the media and trust the media even less. Now, this does not let the news business off the hook. Um, beyond other problems, it's still viewed by many as stuffy and formal, often consumed by inside baseball. You know, we saw this when Joe Rogan became popular. Uh, we certainly see this with some of these influencers who become popular because they're funny or entertaining, even as they make political points. So what's happening is these others don't do journalism, but it doesn't matter. Some do journalism, some not so much. Doesn't matter. They're putting up the numbers. And that is, no question, reducing the clout of the mainstream media. Hey, once again, hope you had a good weekend. Media Buzz segments are online if you want to check them out. I kind of like this, so I think I'll do it again tomorrow. Hope you'll join me then for more BuzzMeter. Listen ad-free on Fox News Podcasts and via Apple Podcasts, and Prime members can listen to this show ad-free on Amazon Music. 